Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to Positively Trek. And we want to give a shout out to our patrons on Patreon, including Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, and Paul D. Kinnear. We want to thank you for your contributions to the podcast. Now, if you would like to be a patron on Patreon, you can join us at patreon.com slash positively trek, where you get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout outs, and associate producer credits. So thank you again for listening. And now let's fly. And he piled upon the whale's white hump, a sum of all the rage and hate felt by his old race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. What? Bobby Dick. Actually, I never read it. Welcome, everyone, to the Positively Trek Book Club episode. I'm Dan Gunther. With me, of course, is Bruce Gibson. And we're going to jump right into it right away here. We're continuing our exciting coverage of the CODA trilogy. This is, of course, the culmination of 20 years of Star Trek literature in the litverse, the novelverse, whatever people are calling it. Uh, And uh, we're so privileged today to have one of the authors with us of book two, The Ashes of Tomorrow. We have James Swallow joining the both of us so james welcome to positively trek thank you so much for joining us hey guys thanks for having me back on the show always a pleasure to be here i am so excited to talk to you because i got a review copy of this book and it was a few weeks ago and i read through it immediately so it's been a while so i skimmed through the whole thing today so it's so fresh in my mind and i just was like oh i gotta ask james about this oh i have to ask james about this wait why did james do this why did James kill? <laughs> we'll get into that. That's great. Yeah, I don't even have my my copies yet, actually, because of uh, COVID and shipping stuff. You know, you know the you know the transatlantic shipping stuff has all been slowed down. So right. I just see you there oh, waving wow. a copy at me, and I'm like, oh man, I haven't even got mine yet. Well, you here know? you can borrow mine. Here I'll oh, throw it to you <laughs> in the screen. Oh man, that's frustrating. Actually, that that kind of brings me to the first thing I want to talk a bit about, which is uh, the collaboration on this book. And we talked, of course, with Dayton Ward about kind of the genesis of the series and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I definitely want to get from your perspective on, on how this kind of trilogy came together and also, you know, working on it through this, this COVID time, like that's got to have presented some challenges as well. So uh, how did this kind of start out uh, from your perspective, writing this with uh, your writing partners? Well, the, the, the sort of the, the initial germ of the idea was kind of pre-COVID. So the, we, we'd been mooting the idea for a while of, of like, you know, the, the fact that things with the Picard show meant that the timeline was changing and it was like, okay, well, this stuff is going to overwrite what we've written in the lit verse. What are we going to do about that? And there were a lot of discussions about different ways we could do it. 
you know, did we want to go down the Star Wars Legends route and just kind of like say, okay, that's done and, and not kind of have any closure to it. And the, the more we talked about it, the more the decision, but like we have to do closure. We have to close it off, right? We have the opportunity to do that. And because of the nature of the genre and the uh, and the nature of Star Trek is, is the kind of stories that Star Trek tells, we knew we could do a story like that in the Star Trek universe. So we started kicking these ideas around. And I have to say, you know, I've said this a bunch of times, I even say it in, in the afterword for the book, I was quite reticent to begin with to be involved in the project because I was, it's the, my inner fanboy was just like rebelling against the idea is like, no, we can't end this, you know? Something that I'd personally invested, not just time and energy in as a reader, but also, you know, as a creator, I didn't want to see it end. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that, I, I keep going back to that Picard quote, I don't want the game to end, you know? And I, and, I felt very strongly that this would be a poison chalice. It would be too difficult to do. You know, I, I had all these negative kind of emotions about it. At the same time, I could see the, the validity of it as well, but I was, I was conflicted, let's be honest. I was in New York for the Thriller Fest convention and uh, I met up with, with Dave Mack and he said, oh, come, you know, we're having this barbecue for the 4th of July. Would you come along and hang out with us? And I was like, yeah, that's great. And Keith DeCandido was there as well. So Glenn Howman, you know, so there were a bunch of sort of Trek nerds in the house hanging out. You know, we had a few beers and we had some nice brisket and Dave took me to one side and said, you know, let, let's just talk about this. And he, he brought me around. He really did. He just he put out the 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 track that we could go down. He said, this is this is the opportunity we have to tell the story. And he's do you not want to be part of this? And I, yeah, actually, I do. And he and he just he convinced me that I should be part of this story. And once we got over my reticence, we just started kind of firing off ideas and it became you know, this this sort of crazy fireball of concepts that we were trying to put together. I went back home to the UK. Dave goes off to, I think it was shortly, shortly afterwards, I talked to Dayton. Dayton's been working at the same time as Dayton's been consulting with CBS on some of the new shows. And uh, and as I understand it, you know, uh, Dave says to him, well, this is the idea that we've got and we're thinking of doing it this way. And Dayton said, dude, it's much worse than you think. Mm -hmm. And so... All of, the, all of these ideas, we were like, we had to just break it all down and start again. And that was the was the genesis of what would become Coda. And we went back to our separate corners and then kind of COVID kicked off. But by that point, we'd already set up these kind of back channels. You know, we had, uh, we, we were doing Skype calls, Zoom calls. We were doing uh, Twitter conversations. And that's where, um, if you've heard us talk about Wormhole Death Cannon, which is our unofficial band name that was the the nickname for the the chat group we had we just put it together through there you know constantly getting back and in touch with each other you know putting ideas backwards and forwards letting each other review our materials it was a very very collaborative experience I mean, i've worked on other franchise projects not just within the star trek universe but beyond where i've had to work in a kind of relay team i mean a good example would be like the fall novels that we did which was like you know it was like one writer passing the baton to the other one this was much more intense than that. It was much more a collaborative experience. And that's reflected in the fact that if you look in the, on the Indicia page of the novels, you will see, you know, the novel title by author. But beneath that, you see it says Star Trek Coda by Dayton Ward, James Swire, and David Mack, because the entire trilogy of stories is a creation of all three of us. We all have our fingerprints on every part of this. And that was just a fun experience, especially working with those two guys, you know, great writers, really fun you know to hang out with and just to just to work with and it immediately stimulates you to try and create the best story that you can and uh, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences of my time in writing career i have to say
That's awesome. Wow. That that's yeah. incredible. Cuz you've done so much and you've worked with these guys before. I'm just curious as you said that you and David had an idea and then Dayton comes to you, "Oh guys, it's much worse than that." Did a lot of the ideas that you and David come with have to be abandoned or is there a lot of that in this trilogy? We the structurally I think the story didn't change that much once we had the initial kind of concept of how we were going to do it. But we had we had different ideas about how we would sort of explore running i'm trying to be careful here about like giving too much away right but we had different ideas about how we would explore the idea of kind of running down the curtain on the franchise and there, there were a number of different approaches but gradually we all found ourselves kind of leaning into the bits of the story that we really like the, the the style of storytelling that all of us kind of are best at and once we kind of had that it was a question of just like structuring it correctly i mean originally I was going to write the kickoff novel and Dayton was going to write the second book and we couldn't do it that way. So we ended up swapping around the, uh, the, the scheduling there. And even before that, in fact, actually there was, there was plans for a fourth or maybe even a fifth book that we'd have done a much longer series. And Dayton had this idea. He wanted to do what he called the breadcrumbs novel, which would be a book that would kind of be a sort of pre trilogy novel that would, that would look like a standalone, but only like when you got halfway through it, you'd realize it's actually a lead into this trilogy that we were putting together. Unfortunately, scheduling timelines and everything meant that we couldn't really do that. It's interesting to consider, you know, if we had, what could we have explored? What stuff could we have done differently? I think it would have been interesting to, to tell those stories. If we had done that, we wouldn't be in this conversation right now because we'd still be very early on into the series. I feel like once we got a handle on what we wanted to do, it didn't change that much. It was just down kind of the fine detail and making sure that we had all the pieces in place because we've got a massive game board here with loads and loads of different characters and, and ships and locations that we had to bring on. And we had to try and do our damnedest to try and make sure we we give them all a moment in the spotlight and we, we try and pay off everything we set up. I, li- I like that you brought that up, the disparate uh, pieces that are on the game board here. In book two here, it really feels like this world is opened wide up because, uh, you know, the the Dayton Ward, the first book, seemed a little bit more uh, kind of focused on the Enterprise and, and leading us into the story. But in this one, we really get a lot more elements of the shared universe coming in. Uh, and as those stakes kind of got higher with with bringing all those people in, was it kind of difficult to manage all of those elements? Or how, how did you find kind of making sure everybody kind of got their part and and massaging the story so that it uh, it worked with all of the people in it? Dave was a great help with this because Dave is master of the spreadsheets, right? And he, we, he was, when we were working on the fall, he had a, this fantastic timeline that we all referred to. And he just swept right in and said, right, I'm going to do the same thing for this. And he put together a document that that really helped us kind of figure it all out. I mean, in, there's a there's a, a a graphic that he did for the pitch document. Maybe when the series is finished, we can show it to everybody. It's this um, this image of the timeline with all these branching different sort of like timeline and character sort of arcs all threaded together, which he sent off to uh, John Van Sitters at CBS to go look. This is the story we're doing. You know, just follow the dotted lines. You'll see where it all goes. A lot of it was that was just kind of like making a list of the characters and saying, who do we have that we want to give a moment to? And, you know, what elements of the the, the greater lit verse can we pay respect to? You know, we want to try and pay respect and, and acknowledge as much as we possibly can of the, 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 the 20 years of books that have gone before, even if that's just in a small way, mentioning the name of a ship in passing or a character, just to sort of have that reference in there. Because we are doing this, you know, we are closing off 
this world, we are running down the curtain. So we want to acknowledge the fact that these stories were told. And even if we can't have those characters play a large part, we want to sort of like, you know, salute them, I guess. I, I did really appreciate that kind of all of the characters getting a, a moment and and really a pretty big focus for a lot of the characters that I wasn't expecting and was really happy to see. I'm going to take this moment just to say to the listener, we're going to get into spoilers for this novel, but I, I want to kind of reiterate what I said when we covered book one. Uh, we're going to be very, very careful. And James, of course, is also going to be very careful not to talk about anything with book three. So if you're worried about that, listening to this, uh, don't worry, we're not giving anything away from the final chapter of the trilogy, which we'll get to in due time but uh, we are going to spoil the heck out of books one and two so uh, make sure to have read those before you continue on and i want to talk about what you were just saying dan about the focus of the characters and how much you appreciate that too i also appreciated how you dealt with the death of dax and esri dax because the death happened and i heard some complaints from some people that it just seemed to happen and there really wasn't anything that happened afterwards with that and not a whole lot of reflection to it but we get that kind of throughout the book with the different characters looking back at her contribution and how they miss her in this universe yeah that's right i mean um yeah i did i did hear about that too is i think some people kind of said well dayton didn't really do enough with that and that's a little unfair on him because the the function of that part of the story the the reflection on dax's death that was never going to be a part of his novel because of the way we structured the trilogy. And like I said uh, just a moment ago, you know, his investment in the story is as much as my investment in his and in Dave's and what have you. So, you know, when you see those scenes where Worf is uh, thinking about Dax and the characters who have been affected by Dax are expressing that their emotions and their feelings about that in Ashes of Tomorrow, that's as much Dayton's hand in there as it is mine as well. You know, it's, like I say, it's a collaborative contribution. It was great for me to tackle that because I, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of high emotion going on there and there's a lot of great drama, which, you know, is, is like, you know, eating drink to any writer having the opportunity to sort of get in there and tell those kind of stories. For me also, I had the opportunity to write about characters who I haven't had the opportunity to write about before. You know, the book opens with uh, Ben Sisko and I've never written anything from Sisko's point of view before. So it was my first chance of getting my hands on that character and being able to put words into his mouth, just trying to you know make them feel as kind of real and truthful as possible, I guess. Yeah, it's funny you brought that up because I remember reading some part with Sisko in this novel and thinking like, have I seen James write Sisko before? And I, I was hard pressed to think of a time. So that's, that's good to know that I wasn't overlooking anything because uh, that's one thing I thought like, Oh, their voices came across really, really well here. Oh, so uh, kudos for that, for sure. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of actual bits in there where we were looking at characters and because we're doing this kind of all-star team up story where all characters are coming together, we were looking at going, you know, have these characters actually ever met in Trek lit before? And there are, I'm trying to think of, I can't remember which one it was now. I think it, it might have been like Picard meeting Bashir for the first time, I think was one of them. We just realized that these characters who, some of them had crossed over in the novels, but, but others hadn't. And we're all bringing them together for this kind of, this massive sort of cosmic event. It was important for us to sort of say, well, let's not forget that because this is quite an, an, an important moment in and of itself. Even if it is just two characters kind of meeting for the first time and shaking hands. 
all those little details, mm-hmm. it was important for us to try and give them weight and moment in the narrative. Yeah, I wondered about that because when Picard meets Bashir, oh, you're Dr. Bashir, right? Oh, you're Odo, right? I was like, wait, has he never met them before? And I was yeah, trying to run it through my mind too, trying to remember who's met who at what point or have they not met? And yeah, I can see where that could be a bit overwhelming and you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to miss something. I mean, one of the characters that I, um, again, this big spoiler here, one of the characters I really enjoy introducing in the story is the surprise appearance of Spock. And we, you know, we wanted, we wanted to have Spock in the story. And I was talking about how we could get involved. And I think it was Dave who said, um, you know, look back at this story that Keith DeCandido had done in The Brave and the Bold, where um, Worf at that point was an ambassador. And he had a story with him and Spock where they shared a mind meld. And that folds into a, a plot element of the novel that we were developing. And I love being able to go back and do that and, and sort of draw this thread from back in Trek lit and say, well, this happened you know, in this previous novel. And if you haven't read, go back and read it, you know, because it's a great story. And, uh, and it was nice to be able to say, well, here we are, like years later, I can pay that off in a completely different way by bringing these characters back together in a, in a new situation where they're kind of in dire jeopardy. Yeah, that was that was fun. The way you brought Spock in there, for sure. And uh, I, I did find myself having to Google when was it that, you know, Spock and Worf mind melded. And just by random happenstance, The Brave and the Bold is this duology that I just have never gotten to. So. Same here. <laughs> now I'm now I'm really eager to read that. I now, know. So. I was like, wait, when did they mind meld? I don't remember. And now now that's now I know why I don't remember it, because I also haven't read those books. And, and it's and it's not mm-hmm. two stories. It's four. It's each book has two different time zones story right so it's a it's a fun read it really is yeah i'm looking forward to that that was on our list quite a while ago i think back on literary treks and we just never got to it before we moved over here is that right bruce yeah i think that's right yeah oh shoot fell through the cracks we'll have to go back and pick that one up for sure oh that means we can still read in this universe that's nice yay oh yay okay (laughs) awesome well uh also with spock of course we briefly get to see savik which i thought that was pretty cool bringing her in with her you know long history with spock and that sort of thing uh is savik a character you've written much of before i couldn't remember myself if you had no, I, I, I've never written. Again, though, she's like one of my favorite Star Trek characters. I think I've like like read all of the novels that, that she's in. I mean, like Pandora Principle. I think it was Catherine Klaus who wrote that. Is one of my favorite Trek novels. Yeah, uh, so Carolyn Klaus. Yeah, Carolyn Klaus. Yeah, I've uh, always really enjoyed that uh, that character. So having an opportunity to put her in there was good. I mean, and in fact, you know, someone had brought up a conversation. We were talking about the in, in the in the um, the Exiles books, the Vulcan Soul series, and those ones is that uh the idea of, of spock and savik being married and it's like well we didn't talk about that that was something we discussed is how we were going to present that relationship is that connected to the lit verse canon that we had are they married in the lit verse or is that something that was in the vulcan exiles book which have always kind of been presented as like they were like their own sort of thing like a kind of offshoot so in the end you know i wrote two versions of that one version mm-hmm. where it, it's it was explicit that they were husband and wife and then the version that we ended up going with at the end where it's like, you know, it's not really kind of stated firmly one way or the other. Interesting. That's I, I did have a, a listener after she had read this novel uh, reach out to me and ask, aren't Spock and Savick married? And I kind of did the, well, depends on the author or the, you know, which storyline you're going with. But uh, that's interesting. I, I, I love that that was taken into consideration. And I, I don't know, I'd love to see that version of the story somehow but that's cool it's it's not it, it's uh the the beats of the story are pretty much the, the same it's the kind of the 
the the dialogue changes slightly because there's just a kind of different spin on it. But I did I, I really loved having the two of them have that conversation because there's it's such a great relationship between the two of them that sort of student mentor thing you know my the, my touchstone is you know that scene where speaking in Vulcan is like he's not what I expected what do you mean he's so human that to me encapsulates their Vulcanness and also kind of their humanity I guess in a way so I I got a lot of love for those two characters and it was fun for me to to write it I think you know one of my favorite moments in the book that I really enjoyed putting in there is where Stavik says you know, everybody in Starfleet is looking for this rogue ship. No one's going to be able to find them. And you think you can just figure it out? And Spock says, yes, because it's <laughs> and Spock, he does. Right? And he does, <laughs> right. right? Because it's Spock. Yeah. And that was, that was such fun to do that. I love that. I want to point out about the whole marriage thing, because this conversation happened a few months ago with Una McCormick about the autobiography of Mr. Spock, mm-hmm. because she didn't have them married in that book either. And we asked why they weren't married. And she's like, no. They're not married. They will never be married. <laughs> she just doesn't believe in that storyline because they're more mentor mentee. And also the, the, the biographies kind of exist separately from the novel verse. I mean, I, I guess that those are the, because they're, they're published by Titan Books, although they're written, you know, Una's a, a novel lit verse writer. It's like, well, do they connect or don't they? It's like, it's a soft canon, I guess. Well, let's get into the plot a little bit. We've kind of danced around, around it a little bit. So uh, we've got... Uh, Captain Picard and his crew have a, and the Aventine crew, of course, have witnessed this future where uh, the the timeline is completely destroyed and and the the Davidians have laid waste to everything that we know and love, and they go to Starfleet and the Federation president to kind of convince them of the danger and what we have to do to counter it, but uh, they find themselves Picard and Wesley find themselves really not able to convince them of this. And I was wondering what it was like in this case, kind of putting Picard at odds with the brass and uh, having to kind of go rogue, kind of having to do another insurrection, but on a larger scale here, uh, that frustration that Picard and his crew feels really came across really strongly. And I was wondering what it was like to kind of write that version of Picard and his crew. Well, you know, we wanted to do something that we hadn't seen in the shows before. And that was, I kept talking about um, touching on the, the, the Marvel comic Civil War storyline. Not, not so much the one from the movies, but the original one in the comic books. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's, you know, there are some similarities in the story, but it basically ends up with super, the Marvel superhero teams breaking down the lines that you don't expect. And we talked about doing that in a similar way with our Trek characters, even to the point that we wanted to have originally, we were going to have more people kind of on the opposite side we were going to break the crews, you know, down the middle. So it wouldn't be like, oh, this ship is pro and this ship is anti. It was going to be people on the ships. We're going to be taking different sides. And in the end, you have to dial that back a little bit because it just became too unwieldy. And we only had three novels in which to tell the story. So we had to kind of thin it down a little bit. At the core of that is I wanted to put the the sort of like the powers that be, you know, the, the Federation Council and sort of like you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the Federation. I wanted to put them in a situation where for once they don't, listen to Picard you know he's got such a reputation I mean I even have that in the story where the president says you know all you've done you you've earned the right for us to listen to whatever you say because you've you've brought us so much stuff in the past that's been true so you get to you know you get to walk up and say whatever you like but you better make it worth it because we're not just gonna accept anything you say just because you are who you are but we'll give you a hearing which is more than most people would get 
in a way, I wanted their decision to sort of say, well, we're not going to chase after this existential threat. I wanted it to be believable because their reasoning is we have a threat right in front of us that we have to deal with, an immediate threat. And then you're talking about this grand existential threat that is nebulous and, you know, like very hard to kind of get your hands around. And we're going to concentrate on the immediate problem because the nebulous one is nebulous. And in a way, it's, you know, I, I've said this a couple of times before, I feel like it's a kind of metaphor for climate change. That's a thing that, that a lot of people will look at and see as a very nebulous idea. It's like, how do you get your hands around that? Because it seems so big. You know, we're humans, we're, we're used to thinking kind of what's going on in my immediate area, in my hometown, in my country, you know, you know, within the range of my sight, what's happening to the world around me and how can I affect that? And then you, when you say, well, here's a problem that is beyond the scope of what you're used to, how do you handle that? And so I wanted, I channeled a little bit of this sort of feelings about that is that how would people react if they were brought this problem that is bigger than any other threat they've ever faced before? Would they realistically say, well, let's drop everything and, and do this on the word of one man? Or would they take a, a, a bit more of a kind of conservative approach? And the tension comes from Picard saying, you know, you can't wait on this. You need to, you know, you need to be with me. You need to understand the seriousness of it. And that's where the that's where the tension comes, and that's where the split develops. Yeah, it's not like they don't believe him. They they do. They see the the issue. But to your point, there's a distant part of the issue, and there's the immediate one now. And they're like, let's just deal with the immediate one now, and we'll deal with that one later. And he's like, no, what needs to be done now is to deal with the later. And that totally makes sense when you say climate change. I can see that. It's like, okay, well, we can deal with what we have here locally or what the immediate circumstance is and we can deal with the other stuff later it's like no you got to deal with it now and that is the reactions that we're seeing in our society today right it's like saying you know oh the the sea's rising i could put my house on stilts mm -hmm. or maybe you could do something about the polar ice caps instead you know it's like what what part of that problem are you going to choose to deal with and star trek's always great when it kind of reflects real world issues so that's kind of i'm certainly putting that in there as well but I think the 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 concept of of, of having a, a problem of such huge scope is how do you do it? How do you even kind of get your hands around the concept of that before you can even start thinking about realistically how you're going to deal with it? And here's Picard saying, well, it's not just it's not a planet that's at stake. It's not even a solar system or a galaxy. It's not even a universe. It's a multiverse, and it it gets to the point where when you have numbers as big as that, millions, billions, trillions, untold, infinite numbers of planets and people who are in danger, it just becomes like white noise. You know, how can you even comprehend? How can you hold that idea in your head? Well, and a lot of the scene reminded me of the series Star Trek Picard because you mentioned about them not listening to him. And it gave me some reflection of what we see in Picard of uh, Starfleet in the Federation not listening to him. I mean, you know, I half expected Will Riker at some point to say he's got sheer effing hubris or whatever. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't know if that was like a, trying to be a parallel to that or it's just, you know, just something that you didn't even consider. You didn't, weren't even thinking about that series. No, no, no. It, that, that was definitely deliberate. You know, there's and in fact, there's a there is one very deliberate moment where. Yeah. They basically say to Picard, we're, you know, we're not going to listen to you. And he's thinking, I'm going to resign. And he's going to, yep. he's basically planning to pull the same move he pulls in Picard. And, and it's Admiral Akara because he uh, is just basically sees what he's thinking and goes, don't. I know what you're thinking. Don't do that. 
and he yes. kind of heads them off before he can sort of turn in his badge and gun like he does in in Star Trek Picard. So that is definitely you know because he is the same man right as the in the Liveverse as he is in that show. I mean, there's some shadings and changes in him that have made him a slightly different person, but his core, he's still the same Jean-Luc Picard. Yeah, I, I definitely. I, I'm glad you brought up that scene because that was one of my favorite bits and I was totally flashing to Admiral Clancy and, and all of that. So that was excellent. Speaking of of captains kind of going against Starfleet and stuff, I, I just want to bring up one bit, which is just one of my absolute favorite parts of this novel because it echoes. I, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to outright say it, my single favorite sequence in all of Star Trek, which is the stealing the Enterprise scene from Star Trek three, the search for Spock. So uh, kind of mirroring that in this and even referencing it as the Enterprise is supposedly being stolen, possibly by Picard. But of course, we find out it's actually a red herring and, and they're using it to throw them off the trail. But that whole bit with the the Kirk contingency and the doors slamming shut and a force field going over the door and stuff. Uh, I, I just want to ask, I guess my only question here, was this scene as much fun to write as it was for us <laughs> to read? Because that was a hoot. I loved that. Yeah, I mean, um, definitely. I feel exactly the same way about the Stealing the Enterprise scene. You know, it's one of my favorite Trek moments from from the classic Trek era. And, and you know, when we were building the 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 sort of the the sequence of events here we were like okay well at this scene how do we get these characters off you know they're gonna have to you know get a ship and get away how are they gonna do it how are we gonna stop starfleet from stopping right there we talked about we talked about originally taking the enterprise not the aventine and, and then i thought well what if that's what people are going to expect us to do mm-hmm. so why not just you know let, let's let's do a rug pull here so and once I, I once I decided, okay, this is going to be a red herring. I thought, let's just lean right into it, and let's you know, let's just you know, let's go back to that classic moment, because people are going to read this and go, oh, this is just like Star Trek Three, and it is, except it isn't. So once I decided that I would kind of you know, I would I wouldn't try to pretend I wasn't doing that. I'd be like, no, this is definitely what we're, what is going on. So that's why I have that moment where someone says, uh. Someone is stealing the Enterprise, which is exactly the line that sequence begins with. And that's deliberate, you know, and it's all the characters in that scene. They all know about that bit of history. So they're all thinking the same thing the readers are thinking is like, what, this again? How's that going to work? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and as you say, it's like it's like a red herring. So it was a, it was a fun moment to have that in there. That's me sort of, you know, just paying homage to to one of my favorite moments in, in Trek movies. Yeah, it, it comes across that it was it was so much fun. That was great. And of course, the uh, the person in the Captain Styles position, I guess, in this case, is Admiral Riker, which uh, was really fascinating. And, and it makes a lot of sense when you brought up the whole Marvel Civil War idea. Like, I'm kind of reframing it in my head. And, oh, OK, I see how that kind of would have come about. What was it like kind of pitting Riker against his former commander and his you know former model for how to be a captain and and having them kind of go head to head like this and and we'll get into what's going on with Riker as well a little bit but just on the surface level of pitting those two together uh, what was that process like writing that well arguably again you know we've never really seen that happen we've never seen these guys truly on opposite sides of a of a issue and so it was fun to sort of how I could do that and also I think you know that since um, since he got promoted, you know since he got kicked upstairs in the poison chalice, 
uh, everybody's been waiting for the other shoe to drop for him to go on full bad roll, right? And I was like, right. <laughs> it's time for us. This is the this is the opportunity. We're gonna we're gonna let him step into that trope, you know, because it's fun and I think it's interesting to put a character like Riker into that situation and have him, you know, pushed to a, to a place that we've never seen him go to before. So it was um, it was a re- it was an interesting challenge to try and play that out to put enough kind of drama in. Not hopefully. It doesn't come across as too melodramatic. I mean, I don't think it does, especially because there's something affecting Riker, you know, and we might as well just kind of go there because Riker is Riker, but Riker is also being influenced by, I guess we could say shadows as we discovered through Worf. And there's little things that are speaking to him from different timelines because he keeps talking about his children. I mean, my child. My children, my child. I, I know there isn't a lot you can talk about on that because we have to get more of that in book three, but what's, what is going on with Riker? Well, you know, I mean, you see that he's suffering from the same issue that Worf did, which is, as uh, Beverly Crusher kind of describes it, is the temporal multiple personality disorder. And the idea is, is that, you know, the 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 enemy who've been uh, attacking the timelines, what's happening is is these timelines, that the, the kind of the barrier between these different, alternate realities is, is becoming permeable and porous right? and, and as these timelines are being destroyed all these alternate versions of the people different characters are some of them are bleeding through so wolf experiences this very directly you know when he's he's essentially being haunted by ghosts of himself but they're ghosts of him from they're, they're dead versions of him or alternate versions of him from from other timelines that have been destroyed or that are under threat and Riker is experiencing something similar, except for him, uh, whereas Worf is, is kind of fighting against them, Riker is, is slowly, incrementally, kind of almost being overwritten by these alternate versions of himself. And he's struggling to kind of hold on to it, what he is, because he's still Will Riker, but he's just a slightly different version of Will Riker. I mean, we see, if you go back to Moments of Thunder, you know, Dayton uh, refers back to that alternate version of Riker where he's the captain of the Enterprise. And, you know, we, we see what happens to that version of him. All of these things are connecting back to the Litverse version of Riker, and he's being affected by, by the energy, by the, uh, the personas, these kind of free-floating ghostly personas that are coming through the, the, the dimensional barriers. And that's what's, uh, you know, affecting his mind. So are other Will Rikers that are alive in other timelines, would they be experiencing the same thing? I suppose it's possible. I mean, you know, we're not seeing those those characters the the way the we constructed the idea the way that the branches of the timeline work is it's so there's there's kind of main branches and there's these little sub branches so the idea is is i think the main branches probably wouldn't be so affected but it's the sub branches because the you know the the lit verse itself if you imagine that that's a branch off of the main prime timeline so maybe it prime timeline reich is probably not getting affected by this at least not yet because that's part of the, what the battle is about is, you know, if, if uh, our heroes don't stop uh, the villains from doing what they're doing, that sort of effect would, would grow and grow and grow until it encompasses everybody in the multiverse. I, I loved your explanation of it as well in the book that, you know, someone might question like, why is Worf not dealing well with this? Cause Worf's going through the same thing, you know? And I think it was Dr. Crusher who said, you don't understand, like other people who have dealt with this have died, like Worf's dealing with this actually quite well. 
and presumably Riker as well through sheer strength of will. That wasn't a pun, but that's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> I see what you did there. Is dealing with it really well as well. So is there a reason it's only affecting particular people or is that just kind of uh, luck of the draw with regards to our characters and stuff? It's, uh, I mean, part of it is to do kind of like where they're positioned in the events that are taking place, you know, so hmm. Worf's position and Riker's position of their alternates in the, in parallel timelines have been, you know, in particularly traumatic kind of destructive events, which is why the, I mean, you know how people talk about how a ghost haunts somewhere where something terrible and traumatic happened to them. Like there's a kind of psychic imprint. So the way I kind of reason it out is that's, that's why those characters, particularly their alternates have gone through something horribly traumatic. And that's why their energy is, is strong. Whereas, you know, other people who have just kind of like, you know, just had a building fall on them or died very, very quickly, they, they haven't had that same sort of effect. You know, some of we see characters being affected by this kind of accelerated time sort of energy where they, you know, they, they decay millions of years in, in a fraction of a second. Those characters could be experiencing the same thing, but it happens so fast we never see it fold into the narrative. We never see it kind of them have the opportunity to be comp to be cognizant of what's going on with them. Well, <laughs> speaking of, of tragic and um, suffering, uh, we get the Deep Space Nine crew in this novel, which uh, I'm, I'm very happy about. Deep Space Nine's always been one of my favorite parts of the Trek universe at large. And in the novel verse, the Deep Space Nine relaunch kind of started it all. And uh, these characters and, and the kind of evolution it's gone through has really been one of my, my favorite pieces of the novel verse. So seeing them in this novel, and again, this goes back to opening up the, the universe and seeing more people, we get Cisco, we get O'Brien and Bashir. Now the Bashir one in particular, I wanted to talk about because of course he was left in a really dark place uh, at the end of David Mack's novel, Control. What was the kind of discussion around uh, where his character would go and, and how he was kind of brought out of that that catatonic state. Because, I, I mean, as Bashir says in a Deep Space Nine episode, you know, we're genetically engineered, we do everything quickly. Uh, so I guess that kind of tracks because, you know, once he learns of Dax's death here, he really kind of comes out of that state really quickly. But he's definitely not exactly the Bashir we've known before. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about his character here. Well, that whole kind of sequence where, uh, you know, we have the, the sort of the catatonic Bashir and we have like, you know, Garrick's kind of looking after him, trying to gently encourage him out of his shell and it's not really working. And then this traumatic sort of news about Ezri's death is the thing that shocked him out of this, um, this silence. That was all Dave Mack. Dave said, you know, this is the way I want to bring the character back and, and this is the way that we do it. And, and when he brought that to the table, Dayton and I were like, yes, that works. Absolutely. That's how we're going to do this. So, you know, he was the one who who created that story thread and and uh, and gave it to me to sort of kind of pay it off. And when we talked about the, you know, that, that moment, that, that key moment where he kind of wakes up, you know, frankly, I would have liked to have gone into more detail with that. I mean, I think that that's, it's a very powerful emotional moment. And I went around and around on that, you know, about writing kind of a lot more about it and getting kind of into the weeds of his character. But there's stuff that happens in book three. And I think that Dave kind of is going to go to some interesting places with Bashir. And I didn't want to get too far into that. So in the end, 
I decided to kind of like take make the choice that, that you that you you pretty much hit the nail on the head right there is the idea that he processes it very quickly because of his you know he's not like he's not like data or spock where it's kind of has a, has a kind of clinical cold precision to his thinking but there is a degree of that to him and i think it's you know he snaps out of that and his first thought this newer version of you know this broken version of bashir is not somebody who's going to just go well i've assimilated that i'll deal with it i'll i'll grieve and then i'll move on he wants payback and uh, his first thought is how am i going to get that and he's like well i'm going to go and see cisco because cisco will know what has happened and he'll be able to get me what i want which is you know someone killed Dax and they're going to have to pay for it. And that's what's motivating him. And, it's, it, and it is, it's coming out of place because this is a darker, broken, damaged version of Julian Bashir. And, and it sounds as if he was, you know, slowly getting to that point of breaking out of this trance that he's in per se, because Garrick had been talking to him and working with him for a while. And this is the thing that really just threw him over the edge. And he thanks Garrick for all the help that Garrick has given to him during this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, had uh, no sort of interstellar incident occurred, eventually, I think Julian would have kind of resurfaced from this. But this is the you know, it's trauma breaks trauma is is the kind of the moment that happens to him here, you know, and that's uh, that's how he he pushes past this sort of like out of this dark place because he's motivated in a way by a darker emotion is what brings him out of the darkness that he's in. With uh, with the DS9 crew and, and the things that are happening in the Bajoran system, of course, that's not the only tragedy. Before we get there, though, actually, I do want to mention uh, we pick up another couple of passengers along the way who need some convincing. And that's, of course, Data and his daughter, Lal. And uh, we get a visit to Omicron Theta. What was it like kind of bringing these characters in? And of course, again... Uh, we're, we're seeing this kind of theme repeated a little bit. You know, Bashir's not the same person he was before. Data very much is not the same person that he was before. I feel like the character as he is now, uh, this resurrected version of him, must be a really interesting character to write given the changes that have, have happened to him. I mean, the fundamental changes that have happened to him. Yeah, he kind of creeps me out. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good, though, because that's kind of what I'm aiming for. You know, there's some... I mean, if you look at the way that uh, Dave writes him in the the Cold Equation series, that that mm. mini series, when we, you know, he resurrects this version of Data, uh, and to me, the kind of the logical outgrowth of that is he becomes more of a kind of Doctor Manhattan sort of figure. You know, is that he's he's growing into the idea, I think, of understanding that he's functionally immortal. He's going to outlive all the people that he considers friends. He's going to make new friends and outlive them, and more friends than those, and outlive those people. You know, and he could be around for an infinite number of years, technically, you know. And I think this is the version of data that we see in this story is, is that he's getting a much longer view than anybody else is. And, you know, he's looking at this scenario that they're in. And he's thinking, well, you know, uh, it's likely that everything will be destroyed. But there's this tiny fractional percentage of a chance that I could possibly save something of myself. And that's the best chance there is at survival. So he's already made that calculation and he's like, I can't help you with this because there's no point. And, you know, and, and he's, because he's, because he's got this distance, this new kind of distance that he's, he's grown into, he's kind of forgotten a little bit about who he is. And when he meets up with his friends, when he meets up with Picard, and of course, Lal still has, Lal hasn't got to that point yet. This resurrected version of Lal, she's still closer to human because of the nature of her character. 
So what we have is her and Picard talking to Data and bringing him around, saying, yeah, don't forget who you were. Remember, despite all of you gained, you may be losing something as well. And they pull him back, you know, to the ideal that, you know, yes, there might be this fractional, tiny possibility of survival that the odds are massively stacked against you, but you have to keep fighting right down to the very, very end. And that's what, you know, makes him eventually decide that, you know, I'm going to come along with you because Lyle's already decided. She's like, I'm going to do this, Dad, whether you want want me to or not. You don't have a, you don't have a say in it. And, and Data kind of, I think he, in that moment, Data realizes he, what he's in danger of losing if he doesn't go along with his friends. I, I love the comparison to Dr. Manhattan. That's perfect. Like I was trying to kind of figure it out in my head what he was reminding me of. And and yeah, that that distance, that kind of dispassionate, you know, looking upon these kind of smaller beings than him in a way, you know, and, and it's kind of, it's really sad because of, you know, how innocent data starts and how, I don't know if jaded is the right word, but how just kind of above it all he feels now. And and it's, it's, it's tough. And I, I love that he's brought back just that little bit that, you know, he's able to kind of join his friends here and take part in this. So that to me, I mean, that felt to me like that feels like a Star Trek moment is that, mm. you know, he's, he's on, he's on the path towards becoming this godlike being, like you say, that is above everything and, and, dis, and disconnected from everything that he was. You know, he's gone past the point of being the machine that wanted to be human. He's gone through that. And now he's the machine that wants to be, the ultimate expression of himself but that means he'll be less human but the other characters say you know you're you're, if you go that route you'll lose something and they remind him of what he'll lose and then there's another part to this story that it's it's touched upon in this book too throughout at different points but of course we're still learning more about it i'm just trying to figure out how this concludes with the whole series and what it all means so i don't really expect you to answer it but is there anything you want to say about Renee and his accelerated growth. Part of that was we just didn't want to have a kid running around getting into trouble. I kind of suspected. (laughs) You know, it was we wanted to have Renee play an important role in the series. And, and, you know, we, we did something that, you know, TV shows do a lot, which is like, you know, age the kid up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then we were like, okay, well, if we want to do that, you know, we want to have Renee play a material role. We don't want to have him literally just being carried around by the other characters, pointing at stuff and crying, right? It's like, how can we give him a role in this story that is meaningful, but also helps us reflect back onto the other characters? You know, the the best kind of scenes and, and narrative elements, I think, are ones that can do two things at once. If you can have two characters having a conversation where you move the plot forward, but you also reveal a character point, you know, those are always the best things to write. So the the, the situation that Renee goes through, which is, you know, where he's artificially aged up, it gives us an opportunity to reflect on his relationship with Wesley, which the idea of him him and his, you know, his, his sort of stepbrother, this, this kind of distaff relationship they've got, but there's obviously a great deal of love there. It gives us an opportunity to reflect back on Picard and Crusher as parents, and it gives Renee a bit of agency in the story where, you know, he's had this thing happen to him. How does he deal with his changed circumstances? And to the point that, you know, he decides that he's not going to sit on the sidelines, that he's going to be involved in this. And no matter what happens, he wants to be with his family because, you know, the strength of the Picards always had a a strong sort of uh, impetus towards family. And the Crushers have always had a strong impetus towards family. So it feels realistic to me that 
you know, Rene, I mean, he is, he's his father's and mother's son, right? He's what would Picard, Jean-Luc Picard's son and Beverly Crush's son, what would they, what kind of person would they be? It would be a person like Rene, who's not going to say, I'm just going to sit at home while the universe is falling down around me. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see where his part in the story goes. And, uh, you know, I, I like that idea, aging up the kid, you know, like TV shows do. And well, like uh, Alexander. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Or Naomi Wildman, you know, just yep. like, yeah, follows the Trek tradition. I really like that. Speaking of, of Trek kids who aren't kids anymore, I guess it's kind of a roundabout segue in there somewhere. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about Jake Sisko because he has a moment in this novel that I, I really loved. And it's at the spaceport where there's all these refugees trying to leave Bajor because this this horrific force is coming, basically. And Jake and his wife, along with Keiko and Kira Yoshi, are in the crowd here as well, trying to get off the planet with the Bajoran militia barring access to the ships. They've been kicked off the ships and they're they're just kind of cooling their heels here. It starts to turn violent. People are starting to kind of turn. And Jake has this moment where he steps up above the crowd. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to calm the crowd down and say, like, the people in charge know what they're doing. We need to calm down. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised, and I loved it, that he turns to the guards and says... You have to let these people through. You have to let them off the planet. And he really kind of takes his role as the son of the emissary and uses that to save these people. And I, I just love that moment. I thought that was incredible. And, and I, I could picture Sirach Lofton as he is now, you know, in that role, uh, looking so much like his father in that moment. I, I just wanted to say how beautiful that was. Thank you. And, you know, and you're reading my mind right there as well, because, you know, that, um, when I was writing, two of my favorite scenes in there with, with Jake is, is doing that. And then the initial scene where you first see him on Bajor, where he's just chatting with his wife about his novel. And mm-hmm. and, I, and, I, and I was looking at a picture of Sarah. I was like, man, he looks so much like his dad. He's fictional dad, right? So yeah. I even put a line of dialogue in there about that, where, you know, when, when his dad turns up, he says, he says, well, we're both good looking men, aren't we? And he says, oh, yeah, cause, just because I look like you, you know. Because the the Cisco boys good looking fellows, right? And I always felt like Jake's kind of position about being the son of an emissary, you know, that his dad has kind of made his peace with his position in the Bajoran religious situation and the Bajoran culture. You know, Ben Cisco knows where he fits, but I always got the sense that Jake really didn't, and that was never really addressed. And we touch upon it a little bit. And there's the whole, uh, you know, the, um, I forget the episode, the one where he's, he's possessed by the par race. We touch on that a little bit in that. But I wanted to explore that. Like, what's it like to be Jake Sisko? What's it like for your, you know, you're the son of the emissary. And what does that mean to him? You know, when you initially see him, it's kind of like something that he keeps at arm's length. He's respectful of it. And he knows what it means to the Bajorans, but he doesn't really want to be in, involved in it. But when we get ourselves into the situation at the starport is everything starts to go wrong. And he realizes he's the only guy who can do that thing because something bad is going to happen. You know, someone's going to, some nervous soldier is going to pull a trigger and there'll be a riot and people will get hurt. And he realizes that in that moment, you know, that that's Jake realizing I can use what I have to do something right. I can follow in my father's footsteps in a way. So Jake steps up 
and you know and he puts his life on the line he stands in front of the soldier with the gun and says you know put the gun down you know what you're doing is wrong these people need to get out of here and so do you and he has that unswerving logic but because of who he is his voice is heard and he's able to do good in that moment and to me that felt like something that jake would do it just felt like a real choice for that character and i was really pleased i got an opportunity to to kind of give him a hero moment in the story it was one of my favorite scenes in the book it really Mm -hmm. did i love what you did with jake with that because as i was reading that scene i thought he's going to do whatever he can to protect his family and then come to realize well not just his family but the people there you know he's not just going to protect just his wife and child he's actually going to use that position of the son of of an emissary and i thought it was one of the best scenes of jake in anything star trek it's one of my favorite jake scenes ever so thank you kudos to you on that and speaking of him looking like his father reminded me of that little wink that you gave where picard met tom paris and looked at tom yes he's seen him before (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's uh, yeah i mean i've always liked uh First Duty is one of my favorite TNG episodes, you know, and I've always thought that the Nick Lacano, Tom Paris thing is like, yeah, no one's ever explained that away. And I thought maybe this might be the only chance I'd ever get to kind of nod towards that. So I thought, you know what, I'm just going to put it right in there because we had, we already decided that um, Tom and Belana were going to be characters in this story. And then as I was writing the the iron for the scene, I thought Wesley's going to be in the room talking to this guy. He's going to look at that guy and go, you look like somebody I know. He's like, am I going to just, I could just have ignored it. And I just thought, you know what? I just, I don't want to. I want to just, just have that moment there. It's a small moment of levity in amongst all of, there's a lot of dark stuff going on in these stories. A lot of people being put through the emotional ringer. And I thought, here's a little moment for me to kind of a little joke, a little nod and a wink. And I figured, why not? And I like how Tom's like, oh, yeah, I get all the time. I guess I have a familiar looking face. You know? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we get to the end of this novel and we have the final climactic battle in the Bajoran system. Of course, the wormhole, they determine that that's how the the Nagas, the, the, the vanguard of the Davidians are kind of getting into this timeline, getting into realities through the wormhole. This this whole sequence is just mind blowing with with how much is going on and what's happening. And, and you know, they they have to sacrifice the station to close the wormhole. We have Nog, who's now captain of uh, his starship because he tragically lost his captain. He was the first officer. Uh, of a California class ship, I have to say yes. that that was a fun little reference there. I thought that was like great that. bringing that in for sure. Yeah, you know, Lower Decks is great, right? And so any opportunity I got to kind of put a reference in there, I thought it would be fun to do. Nog storyline is it's a you know it's a it's a salute to Aaron Eisenberg, you know, a great actor, mm-hmm. lo- tragically lost too young. And I always loved Nog as a character. You know, the the story arc that he's on, we see him going from shifty sort of Ferengi youth to being this you know this captain in waiting and i wanted to give him a straight up moment of you know noble heroism yeah i i loved it as a tribute to aaron eisenberg and and the the character nog himself you know uh really one of my favorite character arcs in all of star trek is the story of nog and when he's addressed i think i think the remaining officer on the bridge says uh we're with you captain nog and addresses him as captain nog that was just such a great moment and even though it's it's a different timeline like necessarily it has to be at this point 
I could see this Nog, you know, giving his life to save the civilians here. And, and then, you know, a thousand years later, there being the USS Nog because of the heroism of this captain. And, and again, I know the events won't play out exactly like that or, or whatever, but you know, it was just like, yeah, I see him being a, a name that's revered for years afterwards because of his actions here. So uh, just beautiful tribute to the character. Thank you. And then I also want to mention, well, actually, let me ask it this way. When you guys plan these novels out, does the story inform you for the most part of the character that's going to die? Or do you guys just sit there and go, I think we should sacrifice these characters? It's a bit of both, really. I mean, when we when we were first talking about the events for Moments of Sunder, in the very early drafts, we were saying we have to end the book with a with a major character dying. And the reason we wanted to do that was to show the readers that all bets are off. And, and you know, we were going to land it and it's not going to be, this character's not going to die in a kind of half-hearted way. He's like, oh, they might come back in a later book. No, we're going to kill off a character. We're going to do it definitively and say, this is, but who was that going to be? And we had a lot of discussions about what character it could be and when would have the most impact. I think it was, I think it was Dayton who said, you know, because we're, we're doing this part of the story or it could have been Dave now. I can't, I can't, it's, we, we had so many different discussions. It's hard to kind of track back some of the events to who was the originator for them. But the decision was, is that because we were on the Aventine in that story, who's the character who is most emblematic of that ship and that crew? It's, it's Esri Dax. And everybody loves Esri. And so we thought, well, if we, if we do away with Esri, that really will hit people hard. And make them understand that you know the as i say that the fact that this is not this this is not going to be an easy ride so we that's why we chose uh to to kill off esri in that point in the story but later on through the book you know as we get into the events of um the ashes of tomorrow there are characters who you know i was in a situation saying well okay i can you know some of these characters you can put them on a bus and have them leave which is kind of like you know jake in this story jake manages to escape and, and he gets away. But there are other characters where I was thinking, well, not everybody's going to be able to make it out alive. And we have to make these, as we're accelerating the threat, as we're building the danger, we have to continually reinforce the fact that this is a very, very serious situation that they're in. So as the story elements were, were coming together, it was like, well, here's a moment where we can have a dramatic character sacrifice who fits best in this position. So Nog's death, Nog saves Jake's life, but he also saves the life of everybody else on the same ship, you know, but that was, to me, that felt like a, an emblematic moment is not only does Nog get to do something heroic, but he singularly saves the guy who was his best friend, which is, I think is, you know, a, a, a great moment of tragedy and it feels truthful to the relationship of those two characters. Uh, same way with um, Chief O'Brien. I wanted him to have a moment that was worthy of him having a statue made of him. In fact, you know, I even thought about putting in a joke about having him say, well, you know, if I don't get out of this alive, tell him to make a statue of me. Um, but maybe that was kind of a little bit too much on the nose. But he's an engineer. And I, we had a situation where, you know, there's they're facing this moment where it needs an engineering solution. And he doesn't think about it in terms of, you know, emotional content. He thinks about it as an engineering problem. And the engineering solution is I have to sacrifice my life in order to make this happen because, O'Brien's always been, I've always seen him. He's the blue collar, working class guy with his el uniform rolled up, his elbows, grease on his fingers, you know, the kind of guy who just gets the job done, who does does his duty. And so um, 
I felt that dealing with his character, ending ending the arc for his character would have to be reflective uh, and emblematic of that. Yeah, it was an incredible moment. And and as someone who's loved these characters for so long, you know, it, it all felt very fitting and very keeping in with their characters. And and I love O'Brien. He's all, long been a favorite. And that description of him and him not wanting to take the uh, the officer's course and stuff, that's just, that was so O'Brien. So yeah. it was beautiful. And his last memories of his wife and children. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Tearing at my heart. He's, you know, <laughs> I think like I always feel like he's the kind of he's the most kind of regular Joe out of all of the Star Trek characters. Mm. And, and I think I wanted to kind of play into that moment for him. Well, we're we're kind of getting to the end of the of the novel here, but of course not at the end of the story yet. And uh I I, I mean I, I just can't wait. <laughs> I'm both I'm both really anticipating and really dreading the end to this story for various reasons. It's all a, just a roller coaster of emotions because this really so far has been an incredible cap to these 20 years of stories. And, you know, from what I've read so far, the three of you have so much to be proud of and I, I really can't wait to see how it all comes together at the end. I mean, you know, we've tried to create a story here that feels truthful to these characters in this world. We've tried to create something that is complex and engaging, uh, you know, and 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 it, it is, you know, it is a tragic story. It's a disaster movie. That's what, you know, we 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 said that from the beginning. Is that's the kind of story we're going to tell? But there's there's moments of light within the darkness, and at its heart, it is a story about these characters doing the absolute best they can in against something terrifying, and you know existentially threatening and that to me feels like a star trek story i i never could get behind the idea that these characters would have a quiet life that you know they would go off and sit on a rocking chair on the porch somewhere it doesn't feel that to me doesn't feel like star trek i, I go back to the there's the kirk quote where he says you know maybe we're not meant i can't remember exactly how it goes there. maybe we're not meant to live happily maybe we're meant to claw and scratch and fight our way up and i always felt like that mm. to me is a fundamental part of trek dna is that you have to fight right to the very end for everything that's really important to you. And I guarantee you this, when you get to the end of Oblivion's Gate, you will be shaken because I certainly was. I mean, even though I knew what was coming, there's not, there will not be a dry eye in the house. Let me tell you, I think, you know, I think Dave's done some of his best work with Oblivion's Gate. I know that there are people out there who will absolutely hate what we have done with this series. And I respect that. Uh, There will be people who won't like the choices that we've made. If you don't like our books, that's fine. Just, you know, keep on reading the other ones. There's still, there's there's a lot of them out there. There's a whole universe of books to read. But I think that if you want to take that journey with us, if you, if you read through these three books, you will come through the end. You're going to feel like you've gone 10 rounds with a Herogen, but at the end of it, (laughs) uh, I think, I hope to think that the, the, the journey will be worth it. Oh, I so want to get to this right now. Yeah, <laughs> I want to get into book three. <laughs> it's I, I get the feeling reading these books, and uh, I you know I I think it's it's a sign of a job really well done by the author that like I read this book and I feel like it was written for me, and uh, I just I love it. So oh, I'm scared and and excited. 
uh, in equal measure. So we have some hints at the end as to where the story's going, but uh, man, I, I have no idea how this is all going to wrap up. I wish, you know, I, I really wish I could talk about it right now because there's, I'm like, oh, oh, this cool thing. And then he does this cool thing. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking right now, there's, there's like literally no hints I can drop. There's nothing I can say that won't be a major spoiler, you know, <laughs> but yeah, in a, in a couple of months time, you know, it will be, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see what people say is when all three books are out, how people are going to view the entire trilogy as a whole, because that will be, to me, will be the mark of whether this work stands or falls, because it is a collective work. It's not one book. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not three books. It's, it's, it's one work in three parts. Yeah. Well, we'll have to maybe, if we could manage it, have the three of you on for a round table or something, because I think that discussion would be a heck of a lot of fun. So I don't know. Uh, that would be fun if we could manage that. But uh, in the meantime, uh, is there anything else you're working on that you can share with us uh, that our listeners would be interested in learning about? Well, uh, what can I say that I've got coming up? Well, just recently, um, this October has been a super busy month for me, actually. So as well as uh, The Ashes of Tomorrow being released, uh, I also did a little bit of work on Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, which is a new video game that just came out. Um, did a couple of Ooh. scenes for that, um, and that's doing very, very well. People are really loving it. So, uh, if you love video games in the Marvel universe, it's a kind of different take on on the Guardians, but uh, it's a lot of the kind of essential DNA of the characters. There. And it was I had a blast writing writing for those characters. I'm a huge Marvel comics nerd, uh, and I just had so much fun doing it. It was just put a, a big grin on my face every day. Uh, and also, the the sixth book in my uh, my modern day action thriller series, my Mark Dane action thrillers. Outlaw, that's just come out in the UK in uh, hardback ebook and uh, trade paperback. Uh, and that's doing very well. And people are being really, really great about it. I'm very, very happy to see how well that's been received. Beyond that, uh, I've got a couple of new projects in the hopper that I can't quite talk about yet because we're still in heavily NDA'd on those. But uh, as always, if you keep an eye on my official website at jswallow.com, or if you follow me on Twitter at jmswallow, anything new I can talk about, that's the first place I'll be talking about it. Excellent. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely be uh, looking forward to seeing more from you, of course, uh, in the Star Trek universe and all your other projects. Uh, really excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, we'll have to talk again when all's said and done, when the dust settles and and <laughs> we see the end of this. So I'm looking forward to that. I've, oh, I've just remembered there is one other Star Trek project I can talk about. I, uh, um, if you're oh. if you're familiar with Star Trek Explorer magazine, which was the the rebranding of the official Star Trek magazine, one of the things they're doing is uh, short fiction in every issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a short story for issue one, which I think is out now. And I got to do uh, I got to do something I've never done before. I got to write a Star Trek Enterprise story. Oh, excellent! One of the things I've wanted to do is I kind of like the idea of collecting this set of doing every, doing one story for like every Star Trek iteration. They keep adding new shows that's making it more and more difficult for me. But um <laughs> but I've never done an enterprise story. So um this is just a just a little short story with Jonathan Archer meeting Q uh, and I really had an absolute blast writing that was a lot of fun. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, we're going to be we're planning on talking about those uh on the show as they come out. So I'm I'm patiently waiting for my issue to show up at, at the door so we can do that soon. So I'm I'm really eager to read that. I love doing it as well, you know, because it's um it's very different from writing a novel because you you don't have as much space to 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 kind of breathe. You have to get your story right down. It's like telling a good joke. You know, you have to get your setup and your punchline right there. Uh, and I had so much fun doing it. 
Um, I'm hoping that I might get to do some more of them in the future as well. Oh, excellent. We'll keep an eye out for that for sure. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us and we'll talk again soon. Looking forward to it. I really can't wait for book three. I mean, book one knocked it out of the park. Book two knocked it out of the park. I know book three will too. And it's so great talking to James. I mean, he just, he knows this stuff. He he can write this stuff. It's just really great. I mean, there, just the way this ended even had an impact on me. We didn't talk about it, but just the orb no longer being active anymore yeah. represents the death of the, you know, wormhole aliens and, or the prophets. And I mean, it's just so good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Bajorans have now joined the Klingons as having killed their gods. Oh, gosh, like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's heavy. <laughs> heavy stuff, heavy stuff. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this novel. I think uh, I think that probably came across in the interview, but I uh, definitely just wanted to say, uh, even without James Swallow here for this final discussion, I, I really love this novel. If you're a Star Trek fan, first of all, I really hope you're not listening at this point, not having read this novel, because I, I seriously question your life choices if that's the case. But incredible book. I've never anticipated a novel before like I'm so strongly anticipating book three now and I can't wait to get my hot little hands on it because I'm going to devour that novel and and like I told James it's I, I'm dreading it but I'm also I just can't wait to read it so it's it's really it's kind of tearing me apart I'm gonna be honest <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't feel that way I, I'm not dreading it I, I don't care like I just because I know it's gonna be so good right you know it's like I'm not mm. I, it's fine like and maybe afterwards I will be like oh now I should have dreaded this you know <laughs> yeah know. now you have PTSD <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah another thing we didn't really talk about was Roe and quark I've always thought that relationship in the novels was a little interesting and kind of disturbing in a way, but I've gotten so used to it that I like them as a couple. And Mm -hmm. even they had to sacrifice in this, you know, and it's like, wow, they did it together, you know? And, uh, and we had the IKS Gorkin and Martok that, you know, we've had several deaths in this. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's been a wild ride and, and, yeah, this novel is just so packed full of stuff. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that we couldn't get to everything in our discussion, but uh, it, it's just, yeah, it's so packed with Trek goodness. And and like I said, when I read it, I feel like it was written for me, which is, I hope, the experience that a lot of Trek readers have reading this, because it's just such a, a an amazing end to this 20-year legacy of stories and ah oh, man again just those warring feelings like i really want to read the end but i'm also really sad to see it end so yeah and then you know what's the future of star trek novels what that's what is that going to be like you know we're going to have anything mm-hmm. as epic as this in a novel form it may be quite a long time i well i don't know but then i think back to some of like the discovery novels and Picard novels we've gotten, some of them can be pretty epic. Not to this scale in a trilogy, but I mean, there's still going to be good stories. Oh, yeah. I I have so much faith in a lot of the writers that are writing Star Trek. I mean, Una McCormick's Discovery novel was one of my favorite novels uh, to come out this year in a year of amazing Star Trek novels. So I don't know, maybe that's a hard thing to say at this point with the Coda trilogy here, but... 
yeah, there's still great stuff to come in the future with Trek novels, I think. And, and I'm really excited to have the people who write these novels leading the way there. So yeah, lots of goodness to come. And I can't wait to talk to David Mack about book three. Oh, <laughs> I'm shaking. <laughs> Well, I don't know if we were going to give a rating, but I'll just say, I mean, it's five out of five visions that Kira has had about the universe being destroyed. Yeah, same here. I mean, for me, it's it's going to be, oh man, all of the ratings I'm thinking of are tragic. So I'm going to try and think of something happy. Um, it's going to be five out of five Bajoran refugee chips that safely escape to warp. That's that's, a good that's one. what my rating is. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Well, when we're not talking about epic ends to decades long storytelling, Bruce, where can people find you online? I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And I'm occasionally on Literary Treks and the Star Wars Report podcast. Excellent. You can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. I'm also on YouTube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. And of course, you can find me hanging out in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. And speaking of Positively Trek, you can find the podcast on Twitter at Positively Trek and our Goodreads group, where we have the novels that are coming up in future episodes. So you can follow along there as well as discussions happening about all of the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. So thank you all so much for listening this week. We will see you in the next episode. Until then, as always, stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.